Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Bilzak. Um, this is not a regular episode of Untenured Tracks. Um, for those of you who have been following the show for a while know that I have been looking for ways to kind of expand um, the scope of the show or find some ways to branch out because I think that public scholarship is really important. I think public scholarship is, is as important as it's ever been. Um, and I want to continue making, um, you know, pushes in that direction. So, um, this week is our first episode of what we are tentatively calling Radio Free Radicals, because I think that, um, like, like public scholarship is as important as it's ever been, you know, public scholarship that's focusing on critical research, um, critical theory and critical scholarship, um, is extraordinarily important today. Um, and I want to do everything that I can to make this incredibly important work as widely available as possible. So if you're listening to this and you're doing research that, that could be, um, you know, classified as, as critical or radical or whatever, um, regardless of your, your rank in the academy or what you're doing, um, please reach out. I would love to have the opportunity to feature your work. That said, um, this first special edition of Radio Free Radicals, which will be coming out on the Untenure Tracks feed, features Dr. David Arditi. Dr. Arditi is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Texas at Arlington, where he also serves as director of the Center for Theory. He is the author of Getting Signed, Record Contracts, Musicians, and Power in Society, I Take Over, The Recording Industry in the Streaming Era, and co-editor of The Dialectic of Digital Culture. He also serves as an editor of the open access journal, Fast Capitalism. This is episode one, we'll see, of Radio Free Radicals. I just had my new book, Getting Signed, Record Contracts, Musicians, and Power in Society come out. It published on Monday, September 28th. So I'm really excited about it. That's so cool. So congratulations Thank for you. starters on that. Um, uh, so how about you tell us about the book? Um, what What's it about? What do you... I mean, I like a good book about power, so I'm hooked already. <laughs> so, I mean, the book could be really about two different things. You've got, on the one hand, issues about record contracts, mm-hmm. and on the other, I uh, sometimes take a deep dive on ideology mm-hmm. to look at the power side. So, the, the book, uh, if you don't know anything about record contracts, um, they're highly exploitative. And knowing that they're highly exploitative, I've always wondered, well, why do people dream to sign these documents that Mm -hmm. end up making them uh, less than labor? Courtney Love once described it, and I think uh, this is a, a great description. Breaker contracts are like those of sharecroppers. <laughs> really? And so I knew they were I knew they were bad, but like sharecropper level bad? 
Like yes. How so? So, I mean, granted, sharecroppers could also do could not do other things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a, a recording artist could walk away from it at any moment. But uh, the way a record contract basically works is the label gives an artist an advance, mm-hmm. like several hundred thousand dollars, several million dollars, uh, to record, market, sell an album. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rec, the artist then has to pay back the advance on their portion of the proceeds. Mm-hmm. So on their royalties. Mm-hmm. And as long as they don't pay that back, they can't really get out of the contract and go anywhere else. Okay. So, uh, this ends up killing the vast majority of people who sign a record contract that kills their careers because oftentimes they don't, the label doesn't market and sell the album. They do what's called shelving it and it just sits around. They can't bring it to another label to sell. They can't sell it on their own. Uh, so it just sits there and their contract requires them to sell so many albums before they can get out. So unless they have a good lawyer to get them out of their contract and then try to find somewhere else to go, then there's nothing they can do. In exchange for that advance, they give up their copyrights. <laughs> so, so why does anybody sign a record contract then? Like this sounds like this this sounds like an obviously bad deal. Like you when you explain it so simply, I mean honestly the first question that came to mind was like how is this legal? How is this how are record labels allowed to get away with this? And that in the, in the and, like having survived, you know, the great Napster crisis of 1999 or whatever. Like <laughs> how is this how is this legal? It seems so sketchy. Well, that's, you know, my previous book was all about Napster. Um, <laughs> so, that's the hypocrisy of it, right? They they pursue people for quote unquote violating copyright, uh-huh. but they use copyright as a mechanism to exploit these artists. So, some of the one of the chapters of this book, I look at copyright uh, and kind of call it a land grab, um, and kind of Karl Marx's terms, it's land enclosure. So it's a form of property enclosure. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and they basically try to have it both ways. But as soon as somebody signs a record contract, they're not labor anymore. They're actually subcontractors. So they don't follow the same kind of laws that labor follows. So one of the solutions that I have in my book is let's start treating musicians like workers because at the very least, things can't get anywhere. You can't have any kind of progress mm-hmm. until they're identified as workers themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody at the record label, from the CEO down to the janitor, is a, a, a worker that follows labor laws, that's play, paid a salary or an hourly wage. Uh, if you work so many hours and the company's a certain size... They have to provide health insurance because of the ACA. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things apply, but they don't apply to musicians who are the people who uh, create the product in the music industry. 
so has there has there never been any kind of like musicians guild or anything like that? So I'm thinking of like something comparable to like the Screen Actors Guild or something like that. Right. Uh, there is the Musicians Union. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the American Federation of Musicians, mm-hmm. and it's a affiliate to the AFL CIO. But that even has its own history uh, of conflict. I mean, in the history of the AFM, uh, the union, it used to cover all musicians that played in basically pit orchestras at movies. Mm -hmm. So anywhere there were musicians playing music, um, they were getting paid a union rate. Mm -hmm. And what happened was as soon as they started injecting sound into films, you had a conflict that arose. So the Mm -hmm. union made it so for at least a period of time, those bands still existed in every city and town in America. And they worked and they were pit orchestras for Mm -hmm. movies. But eventually there was this conflict. And in Los Angeles, they started hiring musicians to do the sound for the movies and there was a lot of conflict and AFM wouldn't allow the, the movie musicians to be in the union mm-hmm. because they looked at them almost as not scabs, but as, as something that was interfering with the livelihood of all these mm-hmm. folks. So this has always been this kind of fraught condition where there's different yeah. types of musicians and they have their, their little pocket. Yeah. But I would say the issue for recording artists is they're it's they're really sold the idea that they are an artist and that artists coming out of the romantic period of the 19th century um, have autonomy. Mm-hmm. So in order for them to produce the art that they want to produce, they need to remain independent contractors who uh, have the liberty to make whatever music they want to. And that's where the rub is right there. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this might be uh, a really stupid question. And I told you a minute ago that I'm really good at playing the dumb guy. How do musicians make any money? (laughs) Then, (laughs) Because this sounds like, this sounds like something that that's that's so evil that it would be like a plot to like a seventies Scooby Doo cartoon, <laughs> right? So it's complex. Yeah, and depending on what you do and what kind of musician, what your role is in it, um, can affect if you make money because there's there's different there's different copyrights. You've got the copyright mm-hmm. of the recording and the copyright of the uh, actual composition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the composition is publishing, mm-hmm. and that's a different pot of money than recording. So mm-hmm. some people who write their own music and record their music, mm-hmm. they get to kind of double dip on that. Yeah, And then the publishing contracts don't work exactly the same as the recording contracts. Okay. So there is some wiggle room there. You have touring, mm-hmm. uh, and depending on kind of the size and scale of the tour it can or cannot bring money back to the musicians okay. um but it's actually very few you know we often use the one percent 
in America to talk about the incredibly wealthy. Well, it also happens to be that, uh, I forget the exact number, but I think it's the top 1% of musicians sell 80% of the music. Yeah. So if you are in that piece of the pie, it can be very lucrative. Mm -hmm. But for everybody else, there's not much there. So you can have, there's many people that have had top top 10 hits Mm -hmm. and are bankrupt. Mm -hmm. One of the famous, the TLC was bankrupt. Um, MC Hammer went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. I think MC Hammer was actually bringing money in, but he had too many people on his payroll. Yeah. Uh, So there's lots of different pots of money. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me. That reminds me of like stories that you hear about professional athletes, right? Like guys who, in their in their prime, were making, or at least on paper, look like they're making millions of dollars, and then they retire from whatever sport and are in their mid forties and are uh, broke, <laughs> right? Right. Because that, that yeah, that I have kind a colleague of, that writes about that. I mean, the the kind of dream of of making it in sports, uh, yeah. most people. You, your career, even if you do make the big money, most NFL careers, for instance, are very short. Yeah. Two, three yep. And if you're only making $600,000 every three years, mm-hmm. you're probably blowing a lot of it because you're not taught money management. Mm-hmm. And then you're out. Yeah. So a random question that I have, um, and I'll, I want to ask it because in part we're recording kind of late and I think my filter for asking stupid questions is a little lower. So like one thing that I find really interesting about these types of discussions when we're thinking about thinking about power imbalances are the ways that we're, we're kind of socialized maybe unwittingly to always take the side of the company instead of the, instead of the artist or the individual. So I'm, I'm wondering about this idea of one hit wonders and couldn't it be true that a lot of people that we kind of have relegated to like, I don't know, like the VH1 remember the nineties types of jokes, isn't it, isn't it possible then that a lot of them could have had more successful careers, but then were then just kind of shelved. Yeah, absolutely. And, but even those one hit wonders, I mean, they weren't shelved mm-hmm. because they did have the one, they'd had the one hit, but then I'm thinking about like the follow through, like, couldn't um, it be the case that that their label, their label, put them on the shelf or or whatever? Like so I'm, I guess I'm just kind of curious about how that how that process works from from where you're sitting. Um, I mean, I can talk about the, the going on the shelf, or I can talk about the one hit wonder. Uh, I guess the I one hit <laughs> the one hit wonder first, and then and then shelving. I guess. So a lot of what I ended up learning about the material aspects of a record contract, at least initially, was uh, by a, 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 a drummer for Semisonic. Do you remember the one-hit <laughs> yes. wonder closing? Yes, I do. Yep. Which still is played at <laughs> bars when they close down. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, so his name's Jacob Slichter, and he wrote a book, and I, he, he teaches now like Yale or Harvard oh, wow. or something. But he wrote a book called So You Want to Be a Rock Star. Mm-hmm. Um, and he detailed all this stuff about how they uh, just didn't even know what they were doing with the, the, the advance. So one one story he told that stuck with me 
was he was um, they were traveling to do radio promo. They walk into like they flew somewhere. They walk in to this room. There's a catering spread. They just grabbed a piece of fruit, did their interview, and left. Come to find out later that that whole catering spread was being charged against their advance. Right, so they didn't even. There's just this food around. Nobody yeah. talked to them about it. They didn't know that that was <laughs> part of the whole shtick. And um, yeah, they. So that's how where the money kind of gets eaten away. I mean, if, when you're a poor grad student, there's a catering <laughs> yeah. You know you're broke. You yeah. see food, you hoard and. Go yeah. on your way. I'm sure these guys would have thought exactly the same way yeah. if they realized that that was being charged against their advance. So who made the decision to, to order that spread? Like, who makes that call and why? Because, again, it, it sounds like a scam, <laughs> honestly. Well, like, it kind of is a scam. So, yeah. um, I, one of my informants, I, don't, I won't go into all the details about what he told me because mm-hmm. uh, I keep everything anonymous in, in mm-hmm. the book but this is the gets back to the question of shelved mm-hmm. he told me this story um, where you know they had a million dollar record contract they had recorded an album at, at an indie label right before they signed with this bigger indie label mm-hmm. you know quote-unquote indie labels that are yeah. uh, part of larger record labels. But they had signed with this local indie label that's kind of you record, and it's almost like a 50-50 share, which is a lot better, right? Somebody's helping you mm-hmm. as a business to invest and, and, and get your stuff going. Um, but they had recorded an album there. Uh, then they signed with this other label, they couldn't access their original album that they had just recorded. They went back and forth with their new label, and it just wasn't happening. And then the label went behind their back and purchased the old album that they had already recorded for a million dollars from the indie. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, the con the the label staff. Uh, it's called. Artist in repertoire, AR, AR guy that had signed them left the label. So the new person that came in in that position had no interest in promoting their album, so they shelved it. And so now that band, they had this a- album that they ended up paying a million dollars for, mm-hmm. um, and they never had a, and, and these are the problems, they never had a manager. Mm-hmm. They were kind of managing their own things. They signed the contract. They thought good things were going to happen. And the whole thing fell through. They didn't know where money was being spent. Yeah, They never saw anything. It was just being done through the label, and it never got back down to them. So they don't even know total how much they ever spent. They were also fortunate. They got out of the uh, – they got a lawyer and got out of the – the contract, but then when it went to a new label, nothing ever yeah. panned out. And they were done. That's so it's so disheartening. <laughs> it's so I don't know. I mean I I'm admittedly like not really informed about the music industry and um so maybe I'm coming across naive to some people listening, but or you. 
But this is just uh, really surprising to me. Yeah, I mean, well, it's infuriating anytime I talk to, to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, people always go, yeah, but musicians make a lot of money. You know, they're on the radio. They make a lot of money. I'm like, mm, no, they don't. And people don't want to hear it. Yeah. I wonder why. Because they think you see this stuff. And that, that's also where the book comes in, right? Like, yeah. You see these images. Mm-hmm. And you see the opulence and the extravagance that is sold to you through television through now mm-hmm. social media about these musicians mm-hmm. um, and you begin to think like it's all sex drugs and rock and roll um, and it might be sex drugs and rock and roll but it's not Bentley's <laughs> and it's not these mansions so a great example is like MTV Cribs which I think they're bringing back but these were often rented houses <laughs> and rented cars and they'd open up the refrigerator and it'd be either empty or full of Coca-Cola mm-hmm. because Coca-Cola stopped, stocked it as an advertisement for MTV. But everybody sees that and they see that, oh, wow, these folks are rich. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of them might be, uh, but we don't even get an idea of what everybody is that's mm-hmm. signed to a record contract. Cause most people are just like some folks that are playing at the local bar. They're, they're trying to, you know, they're playing bigger and bigger shows and they're trying to uh, build and sustain a fan base so that they can push this album. Um, meanwhile, they're like living out of a 18 passenger van with the trailer behind it. And, you know, but we don't think of that as somebody that's signed to a record contract either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a question that I lost it. So, um, I guess I'll go with this one. Um, so in, in the course of this, so you said that you, that you're infuriated every time that you, you talk about this, um, and, and just hear the, I guess kind of the the collective ignorance that people have. What was some stuff in the course of doing research for this book? Were there any any times that you were that you caught yourself like surprised at something, or, or how how mad you got at at a story from one of your one of your informants, or just a moment where you're like, I don't know, like I like I knew it was bad, but I didn't realize it was this bad kind of thing. Uh, well, there was one one guy. Um, he was a booker. Uh, I won't say what city. Yeah. I talked about it in the book. Um, but he, he booked musicians for venues. And first off, I, I was visiting from out of town and I was close to the bars where I found him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he wanted me to go meet with him at another place. And it ended up being like a $50 Uber to get there. And I, mm-hmm. $50 Uber backs. I'm like, geez, you know, I mean, I was at walking distance from the <laughs> place. But I got there, and it really, the kind of business logic, which I always see and I always observe, just really disturbed me with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he, he, you know, he was telling me about who he wants to book, and every band is a dime a dozen. The question is, how much 
revenue can they turn for him? Mm-hmm. How many people does it get in the seats? Mm-hmm. Um, so that town's driven by tourism, people going. Uh, and ch- oh, it was Nashville. Okay. So, <laughs> I, I don't. Have, I don't think we have to worry about uh, the one. The one talent booker in Nashville being yeah, identified. Like, <laughs> um, he right. They you have over a dozen acts play mm-hmm. each bar every night, and the question becomes: people who are tourists that are in Nashville, they come there because they want to hear cover songs. Mm-hmm. So number one, it has to be a cover band. Mm-hmm. But then he he just kind of kept breaking things down. Like, I want to see your socials, right? See your social media impact. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily want to see that you have twenty thousand Twitter followers. If those twenty thousand Twitter followers never re- have retweet the band's tweet, he right. wants active people who then are going to spread word and show up for the band, right? So, and in this equation, and in neither case, if you're going by followers, does it have anything to do with the music? Yeah. Nor does any of that have anything to do with what gets people in the bar. I mean, when I visited Nashville that time, it had been over a decade since I'd been there, and it had just blown up. You just Mm -hmm. had masses of people walking around, going from bar to bar, you couldn't breathe in any of the venues. Mm -hmm. So, again, I don't even know that it matters what kind of social following you have online because it's going to be packed anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And that that kind of leads me to the question that I I had but then forgot a second ago. So with all the touring that's been canceled, then it seems like the the power imbalance has got to be, like, greatly magnified because of the pandemic, right? I mean, what's going on with the pandemic is just kind of another degree of why being a musician in in these circumstances is really bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Because a lot of folks do count on touring to get out there and make some revenue. Um, I mean, one thing I didn't mention with record contracts, increasingly it went from recording contracts to what are called 360 deals. Okay. 360 deals, you got to recoup on that, on recording, publishing, touring, merchandise, one's likeness. So anything is recoupable, and they've made the contracts larger. So you're kind of even more... um, Indebted to your landlord, right? <laughs> it gets further and further complicated. Yeah, trying to to make revenue, but you know what really is disappointing in this is, um, yeah, if they were employees of a, a record label, the record label would either keep paying them or they'd let them go and mm-hmm. they'd be eligible for unemployment. Mm-hmm. As an independent contractor, I mean, I guess you could kind of get in on the small business loans, but those were an utter failure. And for people that are, say, touring musicians, so Mm -hmm. say you've got a big-name artist that doesn't have a band as an artist, Mm -hmm. but you have uh, 
session musicians that are touring with them. Well, there's no tour. There's no money. Mm-hmm. Unless they had a contract that kind of guaranteed them that no matter what happened, they were going to get paid. Mm-hmm. Then they're kind of up a creek mm-hmm. and they might be able to claim unemployment. It, it all depends on what those contracts look like. But then yeah. it just kind of trickles down to everything because you, you've got not just the musicians, but the sound people, the um, uh, roadies, yeah. the drivers for the band. Yeah. And, and so you hit all these different industries and then you get to the, to the venues and mm-hmm. the venues can't stay open. So mm-hmm. the, the people that are yep. staff, staff, whether they're servers or whatever they have in those venues, they don't have a gig. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, uh, it's, it's very similar uh, to what has happened. And, and again, this, this, whenever I bring this up, sometimes people are kind of surprised, but uh, I teach, I teach a lot of classes on violence. And so I know a lot about professional wrestling. Uh, this is very much what has happened to, to wrestlers over the last six months. And really just with their, the way that their contracts are structured and how they're taken advantage of as, as independent contractors without a union, um, really kind of being raked over the coals, um, by whichever company they work for. Um, yeah. The cover band thing is interesting too, because I, I, I mean, maybe I'm alone on this, but I, I didn't even think of them as like part of the group that would be included in this uh, uh, umbrella of musicians and musicians who are being exploited. How, how do cover bands fit into this? Well, I mean, that's Nashville and that's a very okay. particular yeah. uh, thing. That was just, you know, me gathering information. <laughs> I don't really write about cover yeah, bands yeah. much in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, you know, Nashville's its own animal. Yeah. Um, but cover bands used to be a good way to make money. Mm-hmm. And um, I played in this one band with this guy who was uh, maybe 18 years older than me. He owned the guitar shop. I taught lessons there. We he had like this instrumental prog rock band, um, and he had been a hair metal guitarist. <laughs> so you know, he would tell me stories. But one great point that I didn't even have context for. I mean, I started college in two thousand one. Um, he was telling me how into the early nineties. Any bar that wanted to have music always had cover bands. Yeah. And here we are. This was probably 2005, 2006, and we were talking about this. And pretty much no bars in that college town in Blacksburg, Virginia, um, had that much live music. It was always DJs. Yeah. So DJs actually, in in a lot of ways, replaced... Mm -hmm. um, cover band so you could pay a dj 100 150 bucks to come in and play popular tunes mm-hmm. um or you could pay a band and a band each musician is going to need to walk away with 100 bucks so you might be talking 500 dollars to a thousand dollars yeah to pay for a band but what's also interesting from a sociological standpoint is the way uh the listeners the audience becomes accustomed to having this culture in clubs where there's not a live band. When there is a live band, they don't know what to do. 
<laughs> right? So you have this kind of whole culture that didn't exist. You know, if it was the 1970s, there's always a live band going, and people go to the club and they dance and have a good time. Yeah. By the 2000s, by now, right? Now it's just like, well, if you're going to a concert or something, then you're going to a concert mm-hmm. to watch this band, and you might dance along, but right, it's it's a much more passive thing. Where mm-hmm. If you're going out for a night at a club, you know, uh, the, do you look at the band or do you look at the person you're, you're dancing <laughs> with? So it becomes so awkward thing. And they, uh, I would, I always felt like, oftentimes if you tried to do the cover band in lieu of a DJ. No matter how good the cover band was, people will kind of come in and go, is this, is this what I want to do tonight? Right? Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. And in Nashville, that's not the case. In yeah. Nashville, people go there because they want to hear the music. It's the same thing in New Orleans in, mm-hmm. or in Austin, right? Mm-hmm. Like These cities where people go for music, it, it works out a little bit differently. Yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, thinking of the Marxist perspective on all of it, and and ways that like historical materialism comes into play. I never in a million years would have would have thought of you know the the development of DJs and then I guess celebrity DJs as as a part of this you know advancement. Yeah. But it's a hundred percent a type of automation, right? Yeah. Um, and it all has to do with skill. Um, uh-huh. One piece that I wrote maybe published five six years ago called a digital downsizing. Mm-hmm. And since I'm a drummer, I was thinking in terms of what what are the consequences of doing drum programming on a computer yeah. versus having a live drummer uh-huh. to record. And so here I'm just talking about a recording session. But it takes a live, an actual drummer a lot longer to produce the track. Um, so what, what you have actually on a producer, you know, you have this phenomenon that started culturally with hip-hop right Mm -hmm. that had nothing to do with labor it had to do with it was cultural it was on the street with two turntables and a microphone it was this new thing but over time what you get is you get the kind of capital interests that are well now how do we do this with less and less labor automating everything on pushing it more and more in one person. So you have the producer that becomes the composer, the performer, uh, everything. And they're not necessarily getting paid any more for it, but now you don't have all the people in the studio. Yeah. Because you would have, you always had a producer, you always had a sound engineer, but then when they become all the same person working on a computer and working all night to get this song going and all of a sudden you have new yeah. degrees of revenue being and, and value generated. And it's interesting. The digital part of it's interesting too, right? Because I mean, and this might be kind of similar to what you were talking about before with uh, this idea that people have that all musicians are, are like all rock stars are rock stars, right? That there's tons of money and, and partying going on. But like with the the rise of the internet and this this idea that the internet has created so many new revenues for artists, right, or like opportunities for artists, you know, um, through SoundCloud and YouTube and and everything. Um, but in reality, like that's 
that kind of goes back to what you were talking about with that booker saying that bands are a dime a dozen because the internet has, yeah. has kind of flooded the market with, with talented people or at least people who maybe, I don't want to say have it easier, but are cheaper than they were 20, 30 years ago, which yeah. then just gives more power to the, to the labels and, and the corporations that own the labels <laughs> all through this illusion of like the freedom of the internet. That's so and, wild. And that's the thing, right? People, people <laughs> now say, but nobody needs a record label. Well, you absolutely still need a record label. Yeah. If you want to be on the front, if you want to get on playlists on Spotify, if you yeah. want to be on the front page of Apple music, mm-hmm. you need to have a label that talks to them because if it's just you pushing your music, then nobody pays any attention to you. Yeah. And SoundCloud, it's been this phenomenon, right, where all of a sudden they figure out somebody's getting millions of, of streams. Mm-hmm. So they can then say, okay, we'll give you a label or, or a contract because <laughs> we already know you're making a ton of money. <laughs> you don't really need us to that degree. Um, but here you go. Here's a $5 million contract. Um, they get their money out of it, and then before you know it, that person's a, a thing of the past. If you look at someone like Lil Nas X, mm-hmm. I thought he was one of the most creative people um, that we've had in a long time. But I yeah. also don't think he's you know he's got the biggest hit single ever. Yeah, which he's not even that caliber of musician. Right? <laughs> he never had performed live mm-hmm. when he got that record contract and when his his thing blew up. So it, it really came down to he was a master of memes. He already had a following on social media and he spit this meme out and it blew up, right? And mm-hmm. so then that becomes its own platform to get people uh, to get streamed. So everything in the, digi- in the streaming era is... Well, how do we tap these different algorithms to get more streams? And it doesn't really matter about the individual artists to the label because they have mm-hmm. hundreds of artists that yeah. can garner billions of streams across, even if those individuals never really hit a threshold that could even give them minimum wage pay over the course of a month. It just it reminds me of, of a criticism I heard of Imagine Dragons a few years ago. And I can't remember who said it, um, but they said something like, like musicians today are, they're not writing albums anymore. They're trying to write songs that can be placed over a car ad. (laughs) And it was was so sad, but like one of the most, I think just like cutting and accurate criticisms of contemporary music, at least that I've ever heard. Well, and that's one of the, the main cuts that's happened, and this started around 2000, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, a band would never be caught dead or any kind of recording artist putting themselves too closely with a brand. Yeah. That was selling out. Yep. You don't do it, right? Um, and so that was like the third rail of music right mm-hmm. there. You, you don't touch it. But then... All of a sudden, you know, it became, oh, that's what you do. Yeah. You want Geico to make a, (laughs) you know, salt and peppers push it. Yeah. Uh, With the band that was doing the copies, this is the final countdown Mm -hmm. 
forget what band that was, but you want to do that because that's how you get paid now. Yeah. I, you know, I wonder, and this is so far afield from your, from your book. So I apologize, but I wonder if it, it doesn't like parallel with the rise in the popularity of Super Bowl commercials and the Super Bowl becoming a national event, not because of the game, but because people like the phenomenon of like, I don't want to be the only person at work on Monday who didn't see the new Doritos commercial. Right. And like that kind of grossness. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, well, certainly that that kicked up the amount that people would pay for publishing. Yeah. Right. So, and, and the synchronization licenses, there's all these different copyright um, pots. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, they used to not do that kind of thing, and and then they they started doing it because they were willing to put more money into it. Mm-hmm. So you immediately get Rolling Stones songs and the Beatles being pushed out there. To then you know acts that you didn't think ever would do something like that, like say Bob Dylan or something. Um, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, there's a Bob Dylan song on a commercial, and it's really kind of disconcerting <laughs> and nobody even cares like you know when when you're in when you are create that close brand alliance mm-hmm. uh like now i'm thinking about nike and michael jordan mm-hmm. in the 90s the press kind of got on to the child labor and sweatshops that nike was using and they would ask michael jordan and he'd kind of go Oh, I don't, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not going to answer that question because I, I need, I need to look more into yeah. information on that. <laughs> but you, you specifically, you want to avoid that situation, especially if you know you're a rock star and um, you want to give this persona. I mean, I was just seeing pictures yesterday of some, I forget who it was, um, but it was some washed up old punk and he was rocking a, a make America great again. It's Johnny Rotten. Uh, sure. I think it was, was John. That? I think it was Johnny Rotten. I think was it was Johnny Rotten. I think so. Yeah. And then there is, and I forget who made the joke. Um, but some, some, somebody made a joke about Sid Vicious and they like, it was something like one time I called him Simon ferocious and he stopped talking to me or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. 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 Um, yeah, and I and I wish I could find it. There was an article I read so long ago, like when I was in grad school, probably in like 2009, about how how the punk generation became the most likely to sell out. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's totally true. It's so true. They they uh, to like a comical degree. Like the end. Of, if you've ever seen the movie SLC Punk, it's like. The end of that movie is so so true to the punk generation. Yeah, um, you know, I'm surprised Nirvana. Oh, I know heard that yet because Kurt Cobain had that shirt that said "He went on the cover of Rolling Stone and wore a shirt that shirt that said "Corporate media still sucks." <laughs> well, I think uh, I think Chris Novoselic is like a is like a Trump guy. Oh God! <laughs> I think. I mean, I. He might be a Trump guy or a, or a Q Anon guy, but and uh, I guess we should like say allegedly because I don't want on the off chance that, <laughs> that <laughs> Chris Novoselic downloads this podcast and gets gets mad at me. Um, 
if he has any money to come and sue me, I guess. I don't know. Um, but allegedly, <laughs> allegedly, um, but yeah, it's sad. Um, and I saw, yeah, and I saw a thing about, uh, it was a, it was a TikTok from a Trump supporter celebrating like the anniversary of American idiot coming out and how much that album spoke to them, uh, in 2006, right? It came out in 2006. So this is the four, 14 years since that came out. Um, and yeah oh yeah a massive um yeah. one of my favorite albums ever probably the last album that i that i really loved and and viewed as like a, a beginning to end kind of masterpiece but yeah a total critique of the of the bush administration and, and the iraq war and just everything about everything about the man and and his politics and they're like blasting american idiot and and doing like the devil horns and saying trump 2020 this <laughs> is <Like, laughs> so gross um uh, i almost wrote a paper thinking about um or was this close i, I try not to, to to wallow in in my misery but <laughs> it strikes me in that vein um coming out of Rage Against the Machine, um, you know, people were rocking Che Guevara shirts. Mm-hmm. And I love Rage Against the Machine. I love Che Guevara, but most mm-hmm. people that were rocking those Che Guevara high- shirts in high school were not raging against capitalists. <laughs> they were raging against their parents, yep. right? And I remember, um, what's his name? Oh, Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan, yep. And he was, he was like, yeah, my... Uh, What's in my iPod is Rage Against the Machine because I'm raging against the Washington Machine. And it's like, <laughs> what? So I think that there's this interesting lineage. And um, there's a good PBS documentary. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on what it was. Uh, but it looked at kind of that 2000, 2001 moment. They did a, a more recent one about social media. But it was looking at kind of rage rock. Mm-hmm. And they, they kept showing... Um, who were the guys with the masks? Uh, insane clown posse. Oh yeah, yep. So they're talking about ICP, and these people are raging, right? And and I've always just had an image of ICP fan base as being the Trump right, mm-hmm. and and that kind of rage being expressed. But then all the um, whatever whatever they're the clown the clown the, the juggalos. Juggalos. The Juggalos. They got into a huge conflict about two years. I was this close to writing that paper, <laughs> and they got into a conflict with the Trump administration. Yep. So then I was like, well, then the fans, some of the fans might be this, but then there also seems like this radical politics that's being mm-hmm. expressed by ICP. Yeah. Uh, yeah, ICP came up out of Detroit, and that's what, which is like where I grew up. I grew up outside of Detroit in the Detroit suburbs. Um, and so Detroit hasn't had a lot of like big wins in terms of musicians that you can be proud of lately. <laughs> uh, so seeing that the Juggalos were uh, uh, anti-fascism was a surprise, <laughs> such a pleasant surprise, like snow on Christmas Day kind of thing. Like, oh, uh, that's so nice. The Juggalos are actually the people who have it together. <laughs> So, I mean, it's, it's all kind of rooted in, in, in that, you know? Yeah. Um, 
Can we talk about how you bring your scholarship into the classroom? Absolutely. I, I imagine that your students have to have a great time with this stuff. Sometimes. So I get made fun of a lot. Really? Yes. Because <laughs> well, I teach introduction. I, I designed and created a, a class called Introduction to Popular Culture. Mm-hmm. And I'm also, I'm Theodorno kind of critical theory person. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, my, my musical tastes are hardwired into me. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes yeah, they, they see me as the crotchety old man that <laughs> doesn't do music these days. Or, uh, but we have a lot of fun. Um, uh, I'm learning to embrace it. And, and one of the things I'm a little concerned about is I was teaching that class when we shut down for the pandemic and it looks like we're going to be online in the spring for that. I teach it every spring. Mm-hmm. So it looks like I'm not going to be in front of them again until spring 2022. Yeah. Um, and by that time I'm just going to be kind of comically old. Today <laughs> <'cause> I'll be, <laughs> Oh, what is that thing? I'm on terminology, but yeah, I definitely bring things in. I have a lot of fun um, trying to think through some of these things in class. Yeah, Uh, I love to talk about the voice to them, which is a big part of the book Mm -hmm. because it kind of blows their mind, uh, right? That people go on there. The, The argument I make in the book is people go on that show with the dream of winning a record contract. That's what the winner gets mm-hmm. and a hundred thousand mm-hmm. uh, dollars. Meanwhile, the, the, the coaches make anywhere from six to 16 million a season mm-hmm. for that. So mm-hmm. uh, and those, those, those numbers keep going up. So I'm sure they're at least all getting 15 million in, in, in this coming season. So yeah, you're talking about sixty million dollars spent on the coaches and for a hundred thousand dollar for the winner, right? I mean, you get nothing. So I have a lot of fun bringing that kind of in. It, it blows their minds. Yeah. Um, I had no I, idea that I, those contracts were so much. What was that? I, I had no idea that those contracts were so much for the for the judges on those shows. Oh, yeah, no, it's crazy. Fifteen million. Um, I think. For the longest time, I haven't, I haven't seen the past few seasons because I can only find the data that I find online. But um, Christina Aguilera had been the top one at sixteen million, and um, what's his name, the the country artist. Oh, it's on every time. Uh, him and Adam Levine were each making thirteen mm-hmm. million a season, and they do two seasons a year. Mm-hmm. So. They're making twenty six million just from being on the show, and their music ends up getting sold more because yeah. they're on the show. It becomes a platform for them. Yeah. Uh, but the, the artists don't. It can't be a platform. For them. So. Uh, wow. A lot. That's really surprising, but I mean, but it makes total sense. It makes complete sense. Because I mean, it seems like the judges and and some of the reality, like musical reality competition shows, are a little bit past their prime, right? So this is a way to kind of launch into a, a second or maybe third phase of their career, right? And it, 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 they put out hits, and 
Um, but who needs anything when you're getting 13? Yeah. You're <laughs> doing a season. I mean. To not even have to perform, does that just sit there and be like, well, that guy sucked? <laughs> yeah. That, that's really all they do. And you, when you read the. I've talked to a number of uh, people on The Voice, mm-hmm. uh, some that made it to some of the final rounds. Um, but they don't really have any interaction with the coaches. The coaches show up for. Um, photo ops so they can cut some tape and put it in the show, but yeah. it's not like they're actually They're not actually them. coaching. Right. <laughs> Shocking. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, they, they show up for a few hours a week to do their thing, and then they show up for the, the mm-hmm. broadcast, and they bring in the big dollars. And the other folks, they work constantly at, for nothing. Um, wow. So I bring that in. One of the best that I, one of the best things that I've talked about pedagogically with the pop culture classes, we do different things. I have them read since I love music. I focus on music. We start with uh, like Bob Marley's "I Shot the Sheriff" uh, to try to read what that means. Then I give them after a week, about a week. I give them Sarah Bareilles's "Not Another." I, I, I'll. You want me to write you a love song. Uh, and I got to that from one of my TAs. It was like, oh, you would love that song. And I'm like, really? Why, what do I care about that? <laughs> it turns out that that song is a critique of the record label trying to tell her what to, to write. <laughs> so it's everything in my research. So yeah. when I play that for them, it kind of breaks everything wide open pedagogically yeah. because all of a sudden they hear it. They think about it and they go, wow, all right. So I feel like these artists get to do whatever they want to, but here she's having to underhandedly say, I'm not going to write you a love song by making it sound like she's writing a love song. (laughs) Like a wayward relationship when it's a wayward relationship with the label. Yeah. 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 And just like, I don't know. That just reminds me of, of so many times that, that artists have, you know, kind of encoded like messages like that um, about different types of either critiques of capitalism or um, racial injustice or, or both or everything under the sun um, coded into their music that then just comes across as like just another poppy <laughs> beat, right? Um, which then you could argue, isn't that not just then furthering the problem? <laughs> Exactly. And, and they're the exception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most music is kind of just banal. Yeah. And we can pull up exceptions like her, but it really kind of just still proves the rule mm-hmm. that they don't want to do anything to rock the boat because mm-hmm. they want to make it big and mm-hmm. they want to one day be able to make a statement. <laughs> I mean, the big surprise to me has been over the past few years has been Beyonce Mm -hmm. where she kind of made a name for herself being completely uncontroversial Mm -hmm. and then to finally stand up and make statements about racial justice Mm -hmm. that's a rarity yeah you don't usually see Mm -hmm. yeah and like like, (laughs) and and at the Super Bowl halftime show of all places too right um a a venue if you can call it a venue that 
has been as white bread, vanilla, super safe as anything could be since what 2000 or 2001, with the exception of the of the infamous Prince halftime <laughs> that had had the, the moral minority uh, clutching its pearls. <laughs> yeah, and of course uh, you also. You got the exceptions. I mean, you did yeah. have um, uh, the infamous Justin Timberlake. Yeah, that's what I was. That's yeah, yeah. After that one, right? After like two thousand or two thousand one, whatever year that was, when the Super yeah. Bowl organizers were like, "We're gonna have uh, Paul McCartney <laughs> come out," yeah. and and probably Lady Gaga, but we're gonna have we're gonna know everything that you did. Yep. Before you plan to do beforehand, we're gonna yeah. see it. Practice it. Yep. And Beyonce, uh, a performance very much centered on racial injustice and racial equity at the Super Bowl of all places. That's such a gutsy move. Um, and for her, it was just like, yeah, like, whatever. I'm going to keep doing it. People are going to keep buying my stuff. Like, yeah. stay mad. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so since I am losing my capacity to speak <laughs> after a long day, um, I should probably cut it here before I embarrass myself any further um, <laughs> and take up any more of your time. Um, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this stuff. Well, thank you for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you about the book and about music in general and all the messed up things that happen. <laughs> awesome. I know.